This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season, we bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together like-minded organizations who are all focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. We're about to play a recording from the National Disciple Making Forum featuring Freedom in Christ Ministries. Their ministry helps Christians take hold of their freedom in Christ. And one form of freedom is finding freedom from addiction. And that's why we want you to know about Marcus D. Carvalho's resource called Untangling Addiction. It's available for free download at discipleship.org slash ebooks. It's basically a disciple who happens to be a medical professional's take on addiction from a scientific standpoint. It's very interesting content, very unique, and you can download it for free at discipleship.org slash ebooks. Today's content comes from Freedom in Christ Ministries and their track at the National Disciple Making Forum called Discipleship Counseling. The episode is Identity in Christ, featuring Dr. Neil T. Anderson, Reverend Dan Stutt, and Jan Turner. Take a listen. Welcome to this track. Um, I hate to ask this, but it would be nicer for me if we could cozy up a little bit and so I can see the white of your eyes before I shoot, you know, or shout or whatever else. I, I'd appreciate that. Could we come down a little bit closer? And uh, I want to say this up front in case you want to choose another place, but we're going to sequence this afternoon through uh, some teaching and set you up to actually experience what it is that we teach. And uh, tomorrow... Uh, we're going to use those two sessions to actually lead you through the steps to freedom and explain that and uh, make more sense if you're not familiar with our ministry. How many here are already familiar with Freedom in Christ Ministries? Okay. How many are not? Let me let be. Oh, a number of you are. are not. Very good. Well, I'm Neil Anderson. Um, I am the founder and now president emeritus which is the best title I've ever had in my life. It means I don't have any responsibility or management of the ministry anymore. <laughs> and um, and uh, Dan, where are you? There's Dan back there. He is our U.S. president right now. We have an international director of our ministry. He lives in Reading, England. And um, it's, it's fascinating how that just kind of evolved out of our ministry. We're, uh, we have offices in about 40 countries around the world. And... Uh, our, our purpose, I think you everybody get this little handout here today, is um, to equip the church worldwide, enabling them to establish their people and their marriages and their ministries alive and free in Christ. Uh, it isn't just personal freedom, it's also marital and corporate freedom. We have a book, Set in Your Marriage Free, Set in Your Church Free. And um, it's a repentance process. Uh, Let me give you a kind of an introduction to all this and share where I'm at and maybe in my own journey a little bit. I was born and raised on a farm in Minnesota. I uh, went to Methodist Church. I believed that I was a Christian all my life. Actually, I wasn't. And um, uh, I met my wife. She was Catholic. We got married, became Episcopalians. (laughs) And uh, when I was an aerospace engineer, uh, I went to a... Uh, conference, and uh, I found Christ. And I also felt like I'd been cheated for a number of years. Like, why in the world didn't anybody ever share the gospel with me? I, I remember one statement that was, in hindsight, I look back and I go, that's absolutely incredible. 
he was uh, during that conference, he said, what difference would it make if you took Jesus out of your religion? I said, yeah, what difference would that make? I believe in God. So what's my whole ministry today? In Christ. (laughs) Everything is related to in Christ. I mean, that's how far out of it I was. But truth of the matter is, I was the kind of classic Minnesota religious non-believer. <laughs> we have a lot up in Minnesota. And uh, so I've been on an incredible journey uh, that obviously God orchestrated because it was, surely was not my idea. But when I left engineering and went off to the seminary, I had no idea what God was going to do with me with that. I knew little about God, even less about myself. And um, I ended up being a college pastor in a large church. Uh, first time I really tried to introduce the concept of discipleship one-on-one. I've carefully selected a, a small team and met with them regularly. And then we, we split out. We each took one person. My first experience was a flat-out failure. <laughs> I met with this guy. He's about 26 years old and uh, trying to go through some material. I could just see we're getting nowhere. And after six months, I just quit. Only to find out two years later that he was sleeping with half the co-eds at City College and uh, had not shared that part of my life with with me. And obviously, you're not going to disciple somebody with that kind of behavior going on. And uh, so that was my first experience of one-on-one discipleship. Uh, well, after that, God transferred me out, out of that church. I had I went through everything there. I became a minister of adults. It was a large church and then a senior pastor. I left... Uh, pastor to teach at Talbot School of Theology, but I went there with a burden. There were people in my church who had problems I didn't have adequate answers for. I saw many come to Christ, struggle with the same old issues, um, and I said, where's the new creation in Christ? Where is that? Where's the freedom for that matter? And so I was really puzzled by that, and my journey for 10 years teaching at Talbot School of Theology, where I was supposed to be the prof, was a massive learning experience for myself. I went through so many paradigm shifts during that time. And God started to bring all these hurting people to me. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you name it. Panic attacks, eating disorders, sexual addictions, just depression, everything. I think because I was free. <laughs> I have never charged for counseling. <laughs> and... Um, then we went through a very broken experience where I didn't know where my wife was going to live or die, and I was trying to get her some help during that time. And I got a crash course on what the world is getting in terms of uh, addiction and de- counseling, etc. And out of that, I just got a burden. You know, the church can do better than this. And of all things, at that time, my uh, under my department, our pastoral counselor uh, was said he wasn't coming back, and so the dean asked if I'd switch over and teach pastoral counseling. Now, my expertise was evangelism and discipleship, et cetera. And uh, so I said, well, okay. But I had to start from scratch, people. I mean, you're looking at the only pastor teacher who's written books on anger, anxiety disorders, depression, chemical addiction, sexual addiction. I'm probably in the history of the church. All from a Christian worldview perspective, all based on the fact that the answer for these problems is repentance and faith in God. And traveling around this world, what is the most missing thing that's in our churches? It isn't faith, folks. It's repentance. And no opportunity to do it. That's what we want to show you. I mean, no matter where I go, it's still true. And I, I, I puzzle at that and wonder why. Because if there's anything clear in Scripture, Jesus said in Mark 1, time to repent and believe the gospel. And so... That's what we want to try to explain 
and uh, show you some of the results of it and why it is, I think, so effective. And it's not because of me. It's because of the presence of God. Uh, Now, one of the struggles that I've also observed around the world is that the majority of professing believers, I'm not questioning their salvation, but the majority of them are living under a third of the gospel. They presented Jesus as the Messiah, and if we, uh, and he died for our sins, if we pray to receive Christ, you know, uh, I'll get eternal life when I die. I mean, that may sound pretty good, but do we give you the impression that eternal life is something you get when you die? That is not true. <laughs> he who has the Son has the life. What Adam and Eve lost in the fall was life. That's what Jesus came to give us. That's not your natural life. That's his life. Now, it's his life that determines who I am. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. See how great a law those fathers bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God? Such we are. Well, my point on this one is so pointed because every struggling Christian that I've had the privilege to work with had one thing in common. None of them knew who they were in Christ. Not a one. Why not? If the Holy Spirit is bearing witness with my spirit, I'm a child of God, why weren't they sensing that? I didn't know that when I was a pastor. I may have known it theologically, but in terms of an inner experience of I know who I am, his spirit bearing witness with my spirit, I'm a child of God, came to me in about 1983 when it was my first year teaching at seminary, and I started looking through Scripture. Why in the world... Don't we know this? It was like scales came off my eyes. I said, is this a growth process? You kind of grow into it? By the way, I want to make sure. Did everybody get a handout, flyer, what I'm talking about here? Good. And uh, so, or uh, is it because we just don't know the truth? I mean, truth can't set you free if you don't know it. And most of us here have grown up in churches where we've been told all our life we're just a bunch of sinners saved by grace. How many had that experience in church growing up? That's who you are. You're a sinner saved by grace. How many grew up understanding you were a saint who sins? One? Which one do you think is right? You've never seen a letter written to the sinners at Ephesus, have you? If you're a sinner, what do sinners do? Sin. This is no small thing, folks. If you don't believe me, just pick up your Bible. I'll challenge any theologian in the world. I'll just walk you right through it, and I'll show you all the passages where you're clearly identified as a child of God, that you're in Christ or in him or in the beloved. In the book of Ephesians alone, six chapters, there are 40 prepositional phrases, in Christ, in him, in the beloved. 40 out of six chapters. You think God wants us to know something? (laughs) Once you see that, it's everywhere, and it's all the basis for your growth uh, you can't grow. Nothing grows without life. So if you don't have the life of God within you, you're not going to grow spiritually. You may grow physically. And you may grow intellectually. And we try to enlarge your mind. But what God wants to do is to enlarge your heart. We'll explain that in a few minutes. Um, now, if we had that as a full gospel, God, your Bible turns me to Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead on your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Uh, Ephesians 
uh, 2.1 says, having been born dead in our trespasses and sins. Born dead, stillborn? No, no, born physically alive, but spiritually dead. Adam and Eve were both physically and spiritually alive. When God created into the breath of life, to be physically alive means your soul is in union with your body. To be spiritually alive means your soul is in union with God. If they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, on that day they will surely die. And they ate and they died. Physically? No, he lived about 900 some years. But he died spiritually. He was separated from God. Consequently, everybody then who enters this planet is born physically alive but spiritually dead, separated from God. And during those early years of our lives, we all learn to live our life independent of God. It's essentially what your flesh is. And, um, and what Jesus came to do was to give us life. Now read that in verse uh, Colossians chapter 2. It says, And you who were dead spiritually in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Now there's the third part of the gospel. First John chapter three, verse eight says he came to undo the works of Satan. Now, about three weeks ago, Bobby said this morning that I did a webinar with him called Making Disciples in Evil Times. Uh, I just got to be honest with you, folks. I was an aerospace engineer. I was so left-brained at one time, my head tilted on one side. And, and you know, I had no concept of the spiritual world at all growing up. And, and, and very few people do in our Western rationalism and naturalism. So understanding that Satan was the god of this world and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one was just over my head entirely. And, uh, but this third part of the gospel is what most of the world is waiting to hear. The majority of the inhabitants of planet Earth are spiritists. It's funny how we don't know that in this country. Spiritism is the most common and prevalent orientation towards the spiritual world. Uh, any missiologist will tell you that. That's not a, a for question or debate. Everybody knows that. If you go to Brazil, 85% of the Brazilian population by study are practicing spiritists. All your Indonesians are. Almost everybody in Indian and China. So the major orientation of the world is, is that. And they're putting little baskets of fruit around to appease the deities. And, and they consult their witch doctors, their shamans, and their quack doctors to get some guidance or help for their life. We call the California psychics in our hotlines. <laughs> I saw that for the first time about three weeks ago in primetime television. It used to be all late night stuff, but it was eight o'clock at night. They had an ad from California Psychics, and they had people giving testimonies how, how the guidance had changed their life, and for just a dollar an hour, you can get that kind of help. And uh, I started to do some conferences for Campus Crusade for Christ on campuses about uh, hearing demonic influences in this world today. And I started to realize that New Age was far more prevalent in our college campuses by far than Christianity. He said, anybody show up to hear about that? It flooded it. I had 400 at Long Beach State University. I had 800 at, at uh, UC Santa Barbara to come hear about demonic influences. They heard about that, but they also heard about Christ. They <laughs> gave them an invitation. But um, now if I said, come and hear about the claims of Christ, how many th- people do you think would be there? 
you know, two crusade staff and three trapped friends. And uh, <laughs> I'm saying that, but I tell you, that's where our world is at today. And, and so that's where the third world is waiting for us to hear. That's just as much a part of your gospel as the fact that your sins are forgiven. Why? Well, God had given dominion to Adam and Eve to rule over the birds of the sky, beasts of the field, the fish of the sea. But when they sinned, they forfeited that. Who became the rebel holder of authority? Satan did. Jesus referred to him as the God of this world. If you're a good kingdom person, do you realize there was only one kingdom in the Old Testament? Kingdom of darkness. All you have to do is get to Genesis chapter 6, and God looked down and saw that everybody was evil. And if it wasn't for Noah finding grace in the eyes of the Lord, you probably wouldn't be here today. <laughs> and, uh, and, and what did Jesus come to do? To undo the works of Satan. Now, in that podcast a couple of weeks ago, Bobby had mentioned in other places that the gospel you believe determines the disciples you make. Do you have a whole gospel? Why did that have to be solved? You cannot have two sovereigns ruling in the same sphere at the same time. And so Jesus referred to him as a ruler of this world. He's the prince of power of the air. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He's deceived the whole world. Those are not obscure passages in Ecclesiastes. Those are New Testament concepts for us. And whether we like it or not, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, dominions, and rulers. So what kind of a disciple do you want to make? One who owns one-third of the gospel? Thankful that my sins are forgiven and someday I'll get to go to heaven? Or do you want one who knows who he is as a child of God? What it means to be a child of God? Has an intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father? Would you also like to know that because of his position in Christ, he has authority over the God of this world? Wouldn't you want to know that? Now, how important is that? Well, let me not compare, but bring together two concepts of growth or discipleship. Uh, Paul's theology is mainly rooted in the whole fact that we are children of God, who we are in Christ. And you can see that in Colossians chapter 2, 6 through 10. Let me just look there since we're there. Colossians chapter 2, 6 through 10. Whoops, had the right page. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk. How? What's your text say? In him. Rooted and built up. How? In him. And established in the flesh, just as you were taught, abounding to thanksgiving. Now look at the parenthetical insertion for a moment. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now he comes back again. It's just like a parenthetical insertion. And then he comes back. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So <clears throat> Paul's theology is that you have to be firmly rooted in him. Now here's a mistake I made early on in ministry. I assume because people came forward, went to our new membership class, you know, came down, prayed to receive Christ, that they were firmly rooted in him. Is that what you believe? I don't anymore. Not even remotely. Uh, in fact, all the people around the world that are struggling don't have a clue who they are in Christ. And I'll go so far as to say, 
The last thing the devil wants you to know is who you are in Christ. Once you know that, once you have that sense of Abba Father in your own life, you've won the greatest battle of your life. Uh, so if I'm not firmly rooted in Christ, can I grow in Christ? Not what I found. As hard as I tried, I just didn't see it. And so we got people week after week coming to church, you know, hearing a good message and going home and no growth, no maturity. Some are getting crankier. You ever notice that? I used to tell my students, the best assets you'll have in your church is mature saints. Don't alienate them. They may take you off for lunch someday and suggest ways you grow up. Listen to them. <laughs> They've lived a life you haven't yet lived. I said, but the greatest liability you'll have are saints that got old but didn't mature. All they do is censor. You can't do that around here, young man. We have never done it that way before. I mean, they'll kill a church, to be honest with you. And some get crabbier and angrier as they get older. If we're doing our work right, we ought to be able to say every year, I'm more loving than I was last year, more kind, more patient. I'm more of a gentle person than I used to be. You can't say that. You're not growing. You may be more intellectual, but that doesn't mean you're growing. That was another hard lesson I learned. You can know theology and be arrogant, but you can't know God and be arrogant. Knowledge makes arrogance. Love edifies. And what you're trying to accomplish is to help this person become more and more like Jesus in terms of character. Um, now, compare that now. If you got a whole gospel, how about John? Because he describes three levels, essentially. I'm writing to little children. Why? Because your sins are forgiven. You've come into a knowledge of who God is now, and your sins are forgiven. In other words, you've overcome the penalty of sin. Then he says, I'm writing to you, old men, because you've known the Father from the beginning. I believe that implies a deep, reverential, experiential knowledge of God. Then he says, twice, I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. Now, how in the world are we going to help people get to that station in life if they don't know how to overcome the evil ones, since half the church in America doesn't functionally believe he exists. You have a whole gospel? Now we're going to try to show you where the evil one has to play in this growth process in our life and what we can do about it. I remember a man in my church when I was a pastor come up to me and he was a pain in the neck to himself and our church and his wife. And <clears throat> he said, Pastor, I got this voice in my head. Really? <laughs> Not only didn't I know what that was, even if I had known one, I don't think I would have known what to do about it. And that was my burden when I got to tell what to teach. And the paradigm shifts that I went through there of understanding that and knowing how we can find resolution to that. Because I promise you something, folks. If you've got people that you're trying to disciple who are angry, who are bitter, who are frustrated and depressed... And uh, in spiritual bondage, you're, they're not going to grow. I don't care how good you think you are. You could give the most vibrant message in the world, and they'll go home just like they came. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 said, I wanted to give you solid meat, but I couldn't. I could only give you milk. Because of the quarrels and the conflicts that exist amongst you, you are not able to receive it. Not unwilling. We still got people coming to church week after week because it's the thing to do in America. 
but they're not growing. Would you agree with me on that? I mean, I don't like to read George Barnard's stuff. It's kind of depressing. But he's telling this all the time. And, and we heard it again this morning. And uh, so we try to preach harder. And that doesn't work, folks. We got people coming to our church week after week with a whole baggage full of problems. They hear a good message, take the baggage home. And there's no process. There's no way to get rid of it. And so they're stuck to their past, trying to go forward. And, uh, oh, I want to see our people disciple. I want them to know who they are in Christ. I want them to experience their freedom. Now, we're going to come in there a little bit more, but I want to just show you what, what God showed me when I was at the seminary at that time. All these hurting people would come to me, and uh, I'd get stuck. I mean, honestly, I, and I would tell them, I said, I believe Christ is the answer. I believe truth will set you free. I believed it myself, but I didn't know really how. And so I would say the Bible says if you lack wisdom, pray and ask. God will give you wisdom. So I'd stop and pray. I'd tell them that. <laughs> I said, you want to stick around? I'll serve scripture until we find an answer for you. And, uh, and I would stop and pray. I remember one time I must have sat there for 10 minutes just waiting upon the Lord. And then I started to think, hmm, I'm asking God to tell me so I could tell that person. That would make me a medium. And there's only one intermediary between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. Why don't I have them pray? <laughs> if, you, if you bolt out of here 10 minutes from now and, and you actually incorporate what I'm going to say next, I promise you, you'll change your whole discipleship concept forever. Did mine. And I promise you it will for you too. I really struggle with that. And I went home and I said, why don't I have them pray? To illustrate that, uh, there's one place in the Bible, if you're sick or suffering, what to do. What is that? Everybody knows James chapter 5, right? When I say James chapter 5, what are the two things that come to your mind? Prayer and oil, right? <laughs> right? Whose prayer? The effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. How did that passage begin? If any of you are suffering... Let him pray. Why? Oh, hang on. Don't get defensive here for a moment. Why? Because I can't do your praying for you. Don't get me wrong. I believe in intercessory prayer. But that is never to bypass an individual's responsibility to pray. All this came to me before I discovered myself who I was as a child of God. Every true believer has the same Heavenly Father same access to God, exactly the same. We're all children of God. Christ is all and in all. And um, think of it this way. You have two sons, and the younger brother's always asking the other brother, go in and ask Dad if I can go to the movies tonight or have $10. Now, you're a good parent. Would you accept that? I don't think you would, would you? A secondhand relationship with one of your kids? Wouldn't you say, go back and tell your brother to come in here himself? Are we doing that? We're doing it all over our churches. And for some people, the answer is, if I can just find somebody to pray for me, if I can get a lot of people to pray for me. I'm not against that, folks. Don't, don't say that. Don't, don't hang that hooker on me. But I'll tell you what, they can't do your praying for you. 
or confessing or renouncing or believing or anything else. And so when I turned that around, I just wrote up some simple petitions that they would pray. Oh, my goodness. When I first started that, you know, uh, it was just mind-boggling to me what happened next. Uh, you know, somebody would come in and tell me about their dad. They hated their dad. They're depressed about it, you know, and they've been stuck for a long time. Now, if you're a good pastor or counselor or discipler, you would know or should know that the only way you're going to really help that person is help him forgive his father or he's just going to be bound to the past. And um, now let's say you did that very successfully and uh, he forgave his father from his heart. You've done a good thing, and you will probably notice a change in this life. But if you had him pray who he needs to forgive, I almost promise you that dad will be the first name out of his mouth. But there will probably be another 20 that you never talked about. Now, you help him forgive his dad, but not the other 20. How much have you helped him? Some, but not as much as you could have. And I would say the average person prays today what would you say? 20? Here's my experience pros right here. How many names would come out as an average person? 15? 15, 20. Now, you got 15 or 20 people you've never forgiven. Should you take communion next Sunday? Will you? Yeah, you will. What good is that? You're stuck. All the people we've helped around the world, forgiveness is the issue almost. It is the biggest issue we continually face, person after person after person. I talked to a group of 600 pastors a few years back. I don't even know why I asked this at the time, but I blurted it out. I said, how many here have heard or given a message Sunday morning on what it means to forgive from the heart and how to do it? Not one person raised their hand. I'll be honest with you, I was shocked. If you talk to any of our staff around the world, what's the big issue? Unforgiveness. Person after person after person. The other one is sex. All the people that we've led to freedom, those two issues keep coming up. I'm, I'm going to ask my veterans down here. How many people have you taken through the steps that didn't have a sex problem? Of some kind. One. <laughs> why I mean it's just again and again and again and we're going to try to explain that in a little bit I said uh, just to put this in perspective thing concerning our churches this is all based on a combined research it's in my book winning the battle within but there's 16 people sitting on one row two are struggling in America with sexual identity confusion they're not gay but they're struggling with it in terms of them or their family or somebody Another four had been sexually abused, probably the previous two as well. But another four had been. Another four are sexually addicted to lust. And that's true of every row and every church in America. What are we doing about it? Nothing. When I surveyed the student body at Talbot before I left... Um, I asked the male students if they're struggling with their lust or problems. Feeling guilty over their sex life was the question. 60% said yes. 
I also asked the question, if we offered a class, an elective with confidentiality assured to help you with that, would you take it? 50% said yes. That would have been unheard of in that seminary. 300 people would have taken an elective? <laughs> what happened when I showed it to the dean? Nothing. There's our dilemma, folks. Uh, we know what the problem is, but we don't do anything about it. Now, if, if this person is struggling with lust, do you think you can disciple him? Oh, he may become more knowledgeable. But I don't think so. Last week, we celebrated our 25th anniversary of our ministry in Canada. Three weeks ago, I got a call. They just dismissed the pastor who is sending sexual explicit messages to ladies in the church. And I met with the board and... Uh, one board member said, I really feel bad about it. He's going to get defrocked by our denomination, and we've basically fired him because of one incident. Do you believe that? I had to help him with that one. I said, can I kindly just tell you, you just saw the outcrop of probably 20 years of struggle, or 30, for this guy. It probably happened when he stumbled on pornography back in high school, and nobody ever helped him along the way. I'm not here to share bad news, folks, because I, we're seeing people come out of this stuff. Now, the other major uh, transition that took place in my life <clears throat> was not only having them pray. That led to the steps to freedom in Christ. Because one of the most consistent things that we hear, and this is true all over the world, when people sit down, we always ask them when I hear the story, would you like to resolve this? Nobody ever says no. I said, with your permission, then, we'd like to lead you through these steps to freedom. Now, what's going to happen here is not what I do, it's what you do. And I asked for their cooperation. I'll explain that a little later. And, uh, and they pray and ask God. And all this stuff comes up. And we hear all over the world, I've never shared this with anybody ever before. Now, it has nothing to do with us. <laughs> They're not sharing it with me just to share it with me. They're sharing it with God to resolve it. And that's what we want to show you how. How... Here's what I started to realize. Now, when I sit down with another person to disciple them, there's not just two parties here. There's a third party. God is always present. And when I sit down with another person and realize that God has a role in this person's life I don't have and can't have, um, the only one who can set that cat to free and bind up that wounded heart is God himself. I can't do that. And so... On that triangle, God is at the top. I'm an encourager or a discipler. They're an inquirer or disciplee. With me? I said, every side of that triangle is a relationship. Most important for me is my own personal relationship with God. That's critical. That has to be right. One of the things that I learned in the training of the 12, by the way, it's really amazing that Robert Coleman is, is here today, bless his heart. I had him do a doctor ministry class at Talbot 30 years ago, and he was retired then. So, <laughs> but between his book, Master Plan of Evangelism, which is really a book on discipleship, have you figured that out? And um, The Training of the Twelve, those two books were the best I'd ever seen on discipleship. One's 100 years old, but if you've never read Bruce's book, Training of the Twelve, it's a classic uh, to say the least. And uh, 
But think about this for a moment. Uh, in preparing the 12, because you know the whole Jesus model, you know, I'll do it. He invited people to come along to observe him for a year or so. Then he sent them out. You do it, and I'll observe you. And uh, then, you know, we'll do it together. And finally, I'm gone, and it's yours. What was the critical part about that? In all four Gospels, there were two things that were critical. One, all four Gospels teach, anybody wanting to come after me must deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and follow you, me. It's brokenness, essentially. Anybody who finds his life in the natural order of things will lose it. Anybody who finds their life in Christ will keep it for all of eternity. And, um, but that period of brokenness was, was just essential for ministry, as it was for me personally. Um, but when he sent out the 12, the first thing he said to them, I've given you authority and power over demons. That's the first thing he said to the 12. When they came back, they reported what they had done, but he had to correct them. Read chapter Luke 9 through 10 for once and just realize they really didn't get it. <laughs> I wrote a book called Rivers of Revival with Elmer Towns, you know, in the last century. And uh, literally it came out in 99. <laughs> and, uh, and my part was the micro part. And I talked about how preparing people for revival, essentially, that we could go out and ministry ourselves. One of the critical issues was that issue itself that he tried to develop them through. And they brought, after the 12 came back, they brought him a man who was possessed and, and they couldn't help him. And you wicked and unbelieving generation, he said, bring that boy to me and, and set him free. When the 70 came back, they said instantly, first thing they said was, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. He said, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, know the answer. Know who you are. That's the critical issue. Uh, but I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority and power over serpents and scorpions. That's not snakes and bugs. That's the devil and his angels. That was a dagger in the heart of Satan. That God had given mortals authority over that demonic realm. That was new. That was totally new. Until that time, it would take specially God himself. That has been not commissioned to the whole church, and I'll get to that later on this afternoon. Uh, but in that training of the 12, that's going on like that. Now, God is present in our life. We're children of God. So here's an inquire over here. Now, every side of this triangle is a relationship. Most important is my own personal relationship with God. Very important how I relate to the person I'm talking to. Now, here's kind of the sad point. Uh, if you go into a secular counselor today, and uh, do they have a triangle? No, they have a flat line. Now, if you're in the emergency room and you see a flat line on the screen, what are you? And I say this painfully. It's not a nice thing to say, but they're spiritually dead. They don't know the Lord. God is not part of their worldview or their thinking. It's not part of the strategy or the plan or the answer. And, uh, and so it isn't there. And so many of our Christian counselors today have picked up all of that methodology, and I've learned all kinds of skills like accurate empathy, congruence, genuineness, concreteness, you know, Karkoff model, other things like that. Those are just pastoral skills. There's nothing wrong with that. But they left out God. Now, what is the ministry of the church? It's reconciliation. So what am I trying to establish? 
I want to help this person get back into a righteous relationship with God. What's separating them? Sin. I mean, you know, initially, but God forgave us of that. But I still have barriers to my intimacy with God. So if you're hanging on to pride or rebellion or sin, whatever else, it's going to affect your, your walk with God. I'm not questioning your salvation, but you can't live that way and expect to bear fruit. I'm a little bit prideful. Well, God's opposed to you. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm a little bit of a rebel. Well, that's a sin of definition. And don't euphemize that, folks. You got a rebellious problem. Those two issues are what kick Satan out of heaven. Isn't that right? But I don't smoke or drink. Light up one time. It'd be the best thing you ever did. I'm telling you, folks, we're swallowing camels and straining out gnats and don't realize it. We're making mountains out of little molehills, and we miss the real ones. The real problems are really pride and rebellion and unforgiveness and bitterness. Those are the big issues I've discovered in people's lives. And um, now ask yourself the question, who is responsible for what? If we answered that question in terms of our church and families and, and discipleship type ministries, and stop trying to usurp God's role in another person's life, your ministry will change. I promise you that. It really will. Uh, Now, look at the issue of responsibility. Who's responsible for what? Whose role is it? Have you ever tried to play the role of the Holy Spirit in your spouse's life? How'd that work out? How about your children even, for that matter? Can you assume the responsibility of somebody else? Well, you won't decide, I'll decide for you. That won't work either, will it? What's going to change their life is not what you and I do. It's what they do. It's what they believe. It's what they repent of. And so our ministry essentially is reconciliation. Now, in our book, Discipleship Counseling, we delineate that you know, quite a bit further, but time will forbid me to do that. But it's, it's an interesting thing to me that if we had some means to sit down and genuinely repent, as we begin our church experience, which they had in the early church, I'll get to that in a moment, which we have left and gone away from for some sad reason, and it's really had a, a major type of an effect on us. In the early church, they would literally face the West and say, I renounce you, Satan, and all your works and all your ways. Then they would face the East and make a profession of faith in God. Repentance literally means a change of mind. But it isn't just changing your mind because most evangelicals today functionally look at salvation as addition. I just received Christ. And it's not. It's transformation. You are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. You are no longer in Adam. You are now in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. All of that changed the moment we were born again. But the problem that I find amongst a lot of Christians, when you just receive Christ, I'm still the same old person before. I just added Christ onto my life. And they walk out and say, well, I believe that, but I still believe. Anybody, time somebody says, well, I still believe, which one do you think they're going to live by? What they still believe. The early church was much more definitive of that. So was Paul. Are you calling me? But I'm saying yes, no, and no, yes. He said, no, make sure your yes is yes and your no is no. If you believe this, it's just about as important to say I no longer believe this. And if you haven't, you haven't repented. 
You're a double-minded man. You're stable in all your ways. You're trying to have the best of both worlds. So we go to church and profess what we believe there and live differently during the week. Are you going to grow? No. You're double-minded. You're back and forth and, uh, and, and struggling. So here's what we're recommending <clears throat> is, that, is that churches will take something like our discipleship course, which teaches the gospel, who you are in Christ, what this battle is for your mind. I'm going to go over that next. And, um, and what mental strongholds are. And, and lead them through a apprentice process so they understand not only who they are, but to get free from their past. Then, frankly, watch them grow. Now, we still have flesh patterns, do we not? Um, so, what we're suggesting is, is that if you get them through that process... See, right now what happens in churches, we give them a three-weeks new membership class, give them a history of our denomination, and we make them ancestor worshipers, and, uh, or tell them how our church functions and whatever else. Why don't we tell them who we are? Why don't, why don't we lay a foundation for them that uh, you've come to our Christ, beloved, now you're a child of God? Why don't we help them do that? Why don't we help them get through a repentance process? You know what's interesting about that is? Anybody here raised Catholic? Was there a time when you said, I renounce to Satan and all your works and all your ways? Absolutely. Anybody here raised Orthodox? None. Same thing, by the way. Same thing. It's part of their baptismal ritual. The early church would have a rite of exorcism before they'd have a rite of baptism. That's true in all your early ecclesiastical documents. And for some reason, we kind of left that out of our Christianity. And, uh, and I think we're suffering for it that people are presently paying attention to deceiving spirits. Now, what we're suggesting is, is get them out of that stuff first and watch them grow. Where before they struggle and struggle, can't hardly read their Bible, can't memorize anything, just stuck. And once they're free from that, watch them grow. They're no more mature than they were the day before. But they're now rooted in Christ. They're firmly free in Christ. And then you still have flesh patterns. And so... This has been my whole life's work, uh, obviously. Uh, but what if you've got anger problems? Do we have anger problems in the United States? How do you deal with that? Send them to an anger management class? It won't work. If you just look at Ephesians chapter 4, uh, speak the truth and love for members of one another. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Do you know what the next verse is, by the way? Don't give the devil a place. And later on, put away all anger, wrath, and clamor. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiven one another's Christ has forgiven you. You have to think of anger three-dimensionally. One is the present-day management of it, which essentially is managing your thought life. Your emotions are a product of your thought life. And uh, it's like sitting in the comfort of your home and uh, where you have, unless you've got teenagers, control, and... Uh, and then you go out in traffic. Here's your assignment for today and tomorrow. Listen to your self-talk. When the light changes and the guy in front of you doesn't move, what do you say? You don't say it out loud, but I'm sure you say something, right? Hurry up, stupid. Get off the phone, you jerk. <laughs> it's really an interesting thing. Just listen to your self-talk. And, and feel your emotions rise up. And there you got, you know, your road rage. 
Uh, but there's also the problem of flesh patterns. Let's say you raised your children in such a way that they didn't do what you said. You got angry. And so they learn to obey you only when you get angry. You're using anger to control your child. Is that a good thing? No, it's not a good thing. But it worked. That's why you kept using it. Does it work when you're out of sight? No. So you haven't trained anything. It's not a good pattern. But in the book, we list several. And then there's the problem of people don't get angry. They are angry. They're just angry people. You know why? They've been hurt. They're wounded. There's forgiveness is the only way out of that. Only way out of it. You say, well, I'll heal and then I'll forgive. No, if you forgive in order to heal. And, uh, and you just got angry people. And if you think it's bad now, you just wait until the election next year. <laughs> Do you find your blood boiling just a little bit as you listen to the one news you don't like to listen to or the other one? It's amazing, isn't it? Um, so what I've done in the anger book is if they've gone through our basic course, they've gone through the steps to freedom. It's a repentance process. Take them through the anger course as a follow-up to that if they need that, if that's been kind of a lifetime struggle for them. Every chapter after it has one of the steps in it so they can repeat that and just, uh, you know, essentially recover again what they've just done. And uh, it's, it's amazing how that matches up, by the way. And uh, you know what the number one mental health problem of the world is? Fear. Anxiety disorders. People are paralyzed by fear all over the world. It's getting worse. When Adam sinned, first thing he said was, I was afraid. Most repeated commandment of scriptures, fear not. Why is the fear of God the beginning of wisdom? How is it the one fear that can expel all other fears? Are you going to help disciple a person who's scared stiff all the time? If you don't help them with that fear, you're not. They're stuck. Because fear of anything other than God is mutually exclusive to faith in God. Depression. We are an age of anxiety, but we're experiencing a blues epidemic. Do you have any sense how many people in your church are taking antidepressants? I'm not going to ask here, but folks, you're talking about a third of your church or more is being medicated regularly for anxiety disorders and depression. And I think that's kind. I, I think that would be low. What are we doing about that? Are you going to help a person be discipled if they're depressed? These psychosomatic illnesses, I believe, can only be resolved in the church. I really believe that. And I believe we can. I want you to look over the next page for a moment. I've had research done on our ministry. I haven't done this. That top one, it was done up in Grand Rapids. Stephen King is a psychiatrist. Judy is a uh, Christian therapist. We're Canadians, devoted believers. They kind of did this on their own. She's now on our U.S. and our international board. Judy is, and Stephen's with the Lord. But uh, on her own, this is kind of survey research. You know, the purists probably would say it's not that good. But as a group, anybody for asked for help came in. We were, we were given them an appointment and led through the steps of freedom. As a group... 
Group study one, 64% improvement in depression, 58% improvement in anxiety, 63% in inner conflict. Look at this one, 82% in tormenting thoughts. One of the best ways to determine your spiritual condition with God right now is get totally alone and close your eyes and see if you can tolerate solitude and if it's quiet in your mind, if you feel the peace. You can have that. God wants you to have that. The peace of God that passes all understanding. Two other pilot studies. These other two were studies done by doctor to uh, psychology students at um, Regent University, one in Tyler, one in Oklahoma, using scientifically monitored scales. All of the counseling there was done by lay people in every case. We did that by choice. That was the only choice that we made. To show you, it isn't the person so much. They were skilled. They were trained, you know, obviously. But uh, this was not professional help. So how do you account for that? The skilled counselor or discipler? No. Folks, that's God. It was God that set them free. Not us. We can't do that. And, uh, and that's been replicated around the world. I just got a note from somebody in Colombia, which has our model church, by the way. Everybody goes to uh, Casa Sobre La Roca is going to go through freedom in Christ. And... Uh, I went to their 10th anniversary. The church was 3,000. They had seven other churches. Went to the 20th anniversary. They had 35 churches. And the mother church was 5,000. And they have seven orphanages and, uh, in Colombia. Amazing example of what can happen. Um, so uh, we have those follow-on books and series. If, if they've struggled with chemical or sexual addiction, we have books on, on both of those as well to help them get out of that. I'm not a program man. The programs don't set anybody free. Only Christ can do that. Best programs in the world won't work if Christ isn't in it. And if Christ is in it, almost any program will work, I believe. But you've got to get people connected to God in a liberated way. I know this is what God wants us for freedom that Christ set us free. So I'm going to ask Daryl to come up and share. And uh, Daryl was, was my golfing buddy until I had my shoulder replaced. And it was a good thing. He was starting to beat me. And uh, Daryl is a dear friend, and he's part of Freedom in Christ Ministries. And he's up at a church right up here, and uh, I'll let him tell a story. Yes, um, um, this conference is about the importance of discipleship. Um, I only have a few minutes, so I can't share with you my entire story, but I will share with you some of my story. Um, before I met Neil, um, I had a lot of issues <laughs> mental, emotional, spiritual problems that I had baggaged over the years with my upbringing. And um, in meeting with Neil Anderson and walking through the steps of freedom in Christ uh, so that they could help me deal with some of the issues that I grew up with was probably one of the most important and best decisions of my life simply because it set me free from a lot of stuff. The first thing it set me free from was um, being molested as a child by a close relative in my home. So that was the first thing. And a lot of people can't say this in front of church people because you're supposed to have everything together in church when you come. But I wasn't together. I was molested and I had a lot of emotional, mental baggage from that. And a, a second thing that was really a issue with me was I had a lot of father wounds. My father was a pastor and uh, he was very critical 
And the way that my father gave affirmation for me was through negative talking. And so I believed the negative talking that he gave to me. And I used that negative talking as a part of my life. And it destroyed my confidence as a person. It destroyed me as an individual, as a, as a young man growing up um, in, in the home. Now, not only that, but I sought constant approval of my dad. It was really, uh, um, I, pl- I could play sports pretty well. So I, I got a basketball scholarship at Liberty University and I thought that would please him. It, was, it didn't please him. I scored 44 of 68 points of my last game in basketball. I, I, I was the um, MVP of the league, but that didn't please him. And so I never could do enough to please him. So now mind you, bringing all this into my present day, how would you like to be married to me at that time? <laughs> Dealing with that. So because I had so many unresolved issues, I got married thinking marriage would solve the problems, but marriage only brought the issues up in my life. And so I'll have these repeated issues in my life that would come up, being flirtatious with other women while I was married, trying to fill the void in my life that really only God could fill, and uh, dealing with issues of, man, uh, why did my, my, my close relative molest me? What was wrong with me? What did I do? What did I share with him that he did this to me? And how, and how did that affect my life? That really was the things that I brought into my relationship with my wife. And wouldn't you know, in 1992, when we um, got to the end of ourselves, my wife and I came to a Neil T. Anderson conference. <laughs> we still had a little pink book. Still, We still had that little book that we um, look at and reference um, every now and then. And came, we came into that conference. My wife and I were both broken. Broken to the point where we didn't know if our relationship was going to last. Uh, but we knew we loved each other to the point where we said, you know, well, we, we may not divorce each other, but we may kill each other. Um, you know, and one of the things about, um, about my father's will is I would have dreams at night about him. And I would have dreams that I would fight him. And even in my dreams, I would want to kill him. And, and having those type of dreams, you know, I... Talking about a guy who having issues, <laughs> I, was, I was having a lot of issues in, in my own life. But learning who I was as a believer in Jesus Christ, learning my identity as a believer in Jesus Christ, I wasn't a product of molestation. I wasn't a product of my dad's critical thinking, of his insensitivity towards me. I wasn't a product of the things that I, I grew up in. Even though I grew up in those things, I wasn't a product of that. I'm a product of a child. I'm, I'm, I'm God's son. I learned that I'm, I'm, I'm Christ's friend. I've, I learned that I am more than a conqueror through him. I learned so much about my identity that I got hooked on this whole freedom in Christ thing. And started reading book, the book Victor Over the Darkness. Started reading the book The Bondage Breaker. To the point where the book would start falling apart. But I still had issues in my life with my wife. My wife and I went to the conference. And we found out our freedom. And who we were as individuals. 
We found that out. And once we found out who we were as children of God, once we found out who we were as his people, once we found out the things that God had done for us, once we found out the, 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 the whole gospel of Jesus Christ, man, you haven't stopped us since then. And that was in 1992. 1992. And in 2008, I had an opportunity to meet Neil Anderson. And, um, and when I met him, I had in my mind, listen, I'm going to learn everything I possibly can about this ministry and this man because this man's ministry changed the trajectory of my marriage and it changed the trajectory of my life. And I want to learn everything I possibly can from this man. Well, when I met with him, we sat down and talked for four and a half hours, first meeting, three and a half, four hours, first meeting with him. Not only did we talk, we talked about our father wounds. We talked about our mother wounds. We've talked about wounds from the past. We were just two wound-fested guys up in there talking. And so as we talked... I learned so much about what freedom in Christ was and what it is. And in 2008, becoming the family pastor at my church, and after becoming family pastor at the church, I started taking people through the steps to freedom in Christ and helping them to understand who they were, helping them to understand their identity in Christ, helping them become a disciple of Christ, helping them to walk through the pains and issues that some, listen, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, Helping people walk through the pains and issues that church doesn't know how to do. We condemn people. We don't help people when it comes to issues of their hearts. And that's a sad commentary on the church. So, and helping people walk through stuff, man. And, 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 and listen, when I walk, when I, when, even, to, even yesterday, you know, as far as not, not me being a medium, even yesterday in one of my sessions yesterday, I had a young man who had issues with his father. And I said, I said to him, listen, won't you ask God what God thinks of you about your relationship with him as a heavenly father? Because he, he thought he had to work for his salvation. And I said, don't you pray to God and say, ask God, God, tell me what you think of me. And he prayed. He said, God, what do you think of me as your son? And this is what God said to him. He said, son, you are more than enough for me. It's beautiful. He didn't have to work for his salvation. He didn't have to work for his approval. God said to him through the Holy Spirit, you're more than enough for me. Now, I'm not, not, I'm not Neil. I'm a black guy. So when I hear stuff like that, I get excited. I get pumped up. To hear freedom be transferred to an individual, a young man who has been searching for love from his father. To say you're more than enough for me. That's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's the best thing. And I get to be a participant in it. I just get to watch it. I get to watch what God does. And people think, you're just a good counselor. You're just good at what you do. No, I'm not. I just, I just sit there and watch God do what he does in the lives of people. And for Neil, what he did for me when we met he gave me a message of freedom in Jesus. And for me, I had an issue with white men. What can this white man tell me about my black problems? I had those issues. But when Neil and the power of the Holy Spirit looked past my shell and started ministering to my heart and allowing the Holy Spirit to touch my heart, wouldn't change our relationship for nothing in the world. It went past my skin color and his skin color. 
and went and it, and it went into the depths of the kingdom of God to see him as my brother and for him to see me as his brother. And listen, you have the same access that I do. We have the same access as children of God that we can take America by storm with the message of freedom in Christ and repentance process and the whole gospel and teach people who they are in Christ, who God is as their heavenly father, because God loves his children. He loves his people. And in Christ, you have this sheet here. I know I'm I'm out of time. And so for, for, for us, you know, I was, I was, I grew up in the church and at three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> because of the demonic activity that was going on around me, three o'clock in the morning, I would wake up and I would see these things in my room and I didn't know what they were. I, 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 I always going, going to church as a black person, you know about spiritual stuff. You, you're taught how, how spirit things work. However, you never taught how to deal with it. So for me to see a demonic force or demonic presence in my room, it scared me. And so when Neil in his conference began to say, how many of you guys have been wakened at three o'clock in the morning with no apparent reason at all? And I said, wait a minute. He said, raise your hand. I raised my hand. He said, how many of you guys seen things that go bump or seen or heard things that go bump in the night and you were afraid of it? And that was me. I raised my hand. And at that point, I said, oh, I got to get in contact with him because he knows something that I don't know and I need to know because I, I'm scared of the devil. <laughs> but through going through freedom in Christ, I learned not to be afraid of the devil. I learned to be more afraid of God than the enemy because the enemy has no control over my life. None whatsoever. And so those type of things I learned through freedom in Christ ministry. Those type of type of things that I want to take, not only to the African-American church, but church period. I'm not interested in just, you know, getting black folks saved. I'm interested in getting the kingdom of God into all nations because people need Jesus. And this message of freedom in Christ has been a life changing experience for me and my wife and my five kids from the time that we met with Dr. Anderson and his ministry since 1992. So it's a beautiful thing. So if you, if you don't know what it's like to, to be free in Christ, please come check me out. Come talk to me. Come talk to Dr. Anderson. Come talk to people who have been involved in this ministry because guess what? Jesus, whom the Son sets free, always free indeed. Freedom is for everybody. He wants everybody to experience what freedom is. Why? Because Jesus didn't come to die for your sins. He came to give you life and life more abundantly. Why did he do that? Because you belong and I belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We are all created in his image and his likeness. We carry the same DNA that raised Jesus Christ from the grave. It's alive in us. That's what we want to take this message of freedom in Christ and allow God's spirit to rule in this earth before the return of Jesus. I know I don't have time, Neil, to read this stuff. So um, thank you guys for. Okay, This sheet here. I want you to read it with me. Won't you stand with me as we dismiss? This is who God says you are. 
This is your identity. This is your DNA. This is not up for grabs. This is who you are. So I want, I want you to read it aloud with me as we read this, um, uh, uh, the identity in, in, on this last page. All right, let's read it aloud. I am accepted. I am God's child. I am Jesus' close friend. I have peace with God, having been justified. I am united with the Lord and one with him in spirit. I have been bought with a price. I belong to God. I am a member of Christ's body. I am a saint. I have been adopted as God's child. I have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. I have been redeemed and forgiven all my sins. I am complete in Christ. I am secure. I am free from condemnation. I am assured that all things work together for good. I am free from any condemning charges against me. I cannot be separated from the love of God. I have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. I am hidden with Christ in God. I am sure that the good work that God has begun in me will be finished. I am a citizen of heaven. I have not been given the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. I can find grace and mercy in time of need. I am born of God, and the evil one cannot touch me. I am significant. I am the salt and the light of the world. I am joined to Christ and able to bear fruit. I have been chosen by Jesus to bear fruit. I am a personal witness of Christ. I am a temple of God where the Holy Spirit dwells. I am an ambassador for Christ who gave me the ministry of reconciliation. I am God's co-worker. I am seated with Christ in the heavenlies. I am God's workmanship. I may approach God with freedom and confidence. I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. That's your identity. Believe it, receive it, believe it, and receive it. Amen. That's it for today's episode. Make sure to download Untangling Addiction by Marcus D. Carvalho about the scientific background behind addiction from a disciple who's also a medical professional, and he has an expertise in this area. Download this resource at discipleship.org slash ebooks. Thanks for listening.